In 2008, I stepped onto the campus of Southwestern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary as a college student. 18 years old, freshly out of high school. And I stepped onto that campus thinking one thing. I knew it all. Uh, there was nothing that a professor could teach me that I didn't already know. Uh, there was nothing that a upperclassman could show me that I already hadn't seen. I was a student that believed he knew everything. In class, I would sit there and tell the professor what he should know. I was one who would sit in the dorm and talk to the master students as if I had had a PhD myself and knew everything already. At Southwestern Seminary, you could describe my character as one that was riddled with pride, one that was overcome with arrogance, one that think, who thought he knew everything and had the world figured it out and nobody could tell him what to do or how to do it. The more I progressed in school, the more I realized that I needed the wisdom of other people. The more education that I got, the, the more God refined me in the academy of the furnace of the classroom. I learned something. I learned that while talking is important, listening and learning from others is way more important. I learned that it was more valuable to hear wisdom than to share my ignorance. Uh, looking back now, I, I wish I would have talked less, listened more to those who were older and wiser than me. Are you in that same boat today? You're a college student. Do you think you have it all figured out? Do you talk more and listen less? Or do you talk less and listen more? Those of you that are professors, administration, staff, do you wish you could go back to when you were in school? Do you wish you could sit at the table again, maybe at the dining room table with your mom or your dad or your grandparents and listen to them share with you life lessons that they had learned? Because you remember when you were in that spot. You remember sitting there and thinking, they have nothing to say to me. Their advice is so outdated, it doesn't apply to my life. Do you ever wish that you could have spared yourself some of the hardships that you learned through the life of hard knocks just by sitting and listening and learning when you were younger? When I was preparing for this message, I found an article by Jennifer Wilga. Jennifer Wilga wrote down 18 things that she wished she had learned when she had turned 18. Let me give you just a few of them. She said she wished she had learned to be grateful. 
She wished that she would have asked the question, will what I'm going through matter in 10 minutes, 10 months, or 10 years? She says she wished she would have learned the lesson of wear sunscreen. Break a sweat. But the majority of the lessons she wished she would have learned are these. Make yourself a priority. Be kind to yourself. Forgiveness is not about others, it's about you. Not everyone will like you. Make yourself proud. Make time for you. Always bet on yourself. Surround yourself with people who will fill your bucket. There's a problem with those lessons, isn't there? The problem is those lessons lead to destruction. Because those lessons center on yourself. What I want to do this morning is I want us to look to God's Word and learn some lessons from history, specifically from the Israelites in the Old Testament, as Paul taught the church of Corinth. Take your copy of God's Word and open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In the honor of reading of God's Word, I invite you to stand with me as we look at the first 14 Verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that has not come unto man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word today, would you open our hearts and our minds to hear from you? Father, as we take our ear, we put it to the text to listen to you speak. 
We ask that he who has an ear would hear. We pray this in your son's name and everyone said, amen. You can be seated. Paul begins by describing that the Israelites had sinned against God when it came to their everyday worship of him. Look at what the passage says in the first four verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. We know the story of the nation of Israel. We know that it was God who called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And he said he's going to do that through blessing him with the son. And God ultimately sent a son in Isaac, his one and his only son. And it was the son of the promise. And Isaac had Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And of those 12 sons, there was one son in particular that he loved greatly. And that one son was Joseph. And he gave Joseph a coat of many colors. And while the other Uh, his other brothers were out in the field and they were out doing the responsibilities. God took, uh, Jacob took Joseph and he said, Joseph, I want you to go out there and deliver some supplies. And Joseph comes out there to deliver some supplies to his brothers. And his brothers are filled with resentment towards Joseph. And they can devise a plan on how they can get rid of their father's favorite son. So they ripped the coat off of him and they dipped the coat in blood and they sold their brother into slavery. And Joseph finds himself in Egypt. And it's there in Egypt that he rises in the ranks. And then we know as we fast forward in the story, a famine comes. And Jacob and his now 11 boys are in need of some food. So he sends them into Egypt and they find themselves in the presence of their brother Joseph. And Joseph does not reveal himself to them, but later would provide uh, to them the food that they needed and then ask them to come and stay. And he shows himself to them that he is their brother. And it is through that that God used the evil of the brothers to do good to the nation of Israel. And then we know that after Joseph died, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And that Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites. And all of the Israelites were the workforce, the labor force of the Egyptians. And their labor was growing in intensity as they were forced to make more bricks and to do more harsh labor. And God called Moses, who was out in the plains, and he spoke to him through a burning bush and commissioned him. He commissioned a a man who was stumbling and stammering and stuttering to go back to Egypt and to rescue his people from the hands of the mighty Pharaoh. And we know Moses goes back and he does that. And Moses leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And in their journey out of Egypt, he leads them to a sea. And there's this great sea before them. And behind them is the pursuit of the Egyptian army. All the great world power 
that they had, all their chariots, everything coming after them because Pharaoh realized what he had done. And there's a sea before them. There's an army pursuing behind them. And they're stuck and they think they're about to die. And God shows up and he does something amazing, doesn't he? He parts the sea. And Israel walks through on dry land. And the water comes in behind and it consumes the Egyptians. And the problems of Israel are done away with with the Egyptians as they are rescued by the hand of God. And then we know what happens next, don't we? They get out in the wilderness. And they need some food. And God sends food from heaven. And he feeds them. And we know they're out in the desert and they're thirsty. God provides water for them to drink. It's amazing, isn't it, the provision of God? In the midst of the evening of the cold of the desert night, God gave His presence and a fire to warm them. In the heat of the desert day, God sent His cloud of protection to shade them. What a good God we serve, don't we? What a wonderful God we serve. In the midst of all of the protection, in the midst of all of the provision, in the midst of all of the goodness of God, we read verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, he was not pleased. Most of them. If I could, for just a moment, talk to you as a pastor. Part of your mission is to have, if I'm not mistaken, the heart of a pastor. I want to talk to you as a pastor for just a moment. One of the things that grips my heart as a pastor is that in the midst of all the good that God's doing, and He's doing a lot of great things at my church, and He's doing a lot of wonderful things right here at Northeastern Baptist College. He's provided. He's protected. He has led in amazing ways in your life. And that's why you're here. But in the midst of all the good that he's done, I wonder, is he pleased with the most of us? In the midst of all the greatness of God, how he's fed you, how he's protected you, how he's covered you, how he's led you, I, I, I just wonder, that it, when God looks down at Northeastern Baptist College and sees the faculty and the students and the staff, does He say, but with most of them, I am not pleased. What a devastating statement to make, isn't it? But with most of them, I'm not pleased. Is God pleased with your worship of Him? in light of all that He's done in your life, in light of everything that He has done to bring you to where He brought you, all the seas that He led you through on dry land, all the food that He's provided from heaven, all the water that He's given from a rock, all the shade that He's given from His presence, all the warmth that He's given from His presence, everything that God has done, all the rescuing from the enemies of life that He has done in your life. I'm, I'm asking just a simple question. Is God pleased with our worship in response to that. 
Because in verse 5, we're told God is not pleased. It says, but with most of them. I could understand that the passage said some of them. There's always a some of them. Am I right? There's always a little group in a church, in a, in a, in a school, in, in something that are just going to be the stick in the muds. Right? But it doesn't say that there's just a small faction division of people. No, it says, but with most of them, he was not pleased. With the majority of them, he was not satisfied with their worship in response to what he had done. With most of them, it says, he was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. God has been so good to you. God's been so good to me. He's been so good to our church. He's been so good to this school. And he's blessed us so immensely. And I just pray as a pastor that we will never take it for granted like Israel did. So how do we protect ourselves from God not being pleased with our worship? Or, or to put it a different way, how can we protect ourselves from sin so that we can worship God with our entire life? I want to share with you two simple actions that we can learn to do from the Israelites that will help us be biblical worshipers. Number one, we must run from sin. We must run from sin. Look at what the Bible says in verse 6. Now these things took place for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And the first sin that we're called to run from is we have to run from the sin of idolatry. Look at what he says in the passage, verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. For as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Israel, like so many of us, find ourselves dividing our attention between God and so many things that we think are important. Are you an idolatrous person this morning? You say, I don't have a bronze statue in my house. I don't have a gold-casted calf that I created that I'm bowing down and praying to. I don't go over and, and pray to uh, a statue and burn incense. I'm not an idolatrous person. Well, let me ask you some questions, and let's see how good we are with not being idolatrous. This morning when you got up and you came here to school, did you start your day with the mindset that everything you're going to do today in school was for the glory of God? Or was it to get an A? Or a B? Or if it's Dr. Williams' class, pass. <laughs> but seriously, did you get up this morning for the purpose of glorifying God with your academics? When, when, when you study this afternoon, are you going to study for the glory of God? When you go to your job later, are you going to do your job to the glory of God? 
When you teach that class later, professor, are you going to teach that class to the glory of God? Is that the end of what you're doing? Administrator, staff member, faculty member, student, are you doing everything to the praise, honor, and glory and pleasure of God? Or are there other things for why you do it? If God is not the end of all your decisions and your actions, then listen, you're probably struggling with idolatry. Number one, we, we, must, we must run from idolatry. We also must run from sexual sin. Look at what the passage says again. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Satan has found that sex is a good temptation to distract believers from worshiping God with their whole life. The statistics of churchgoers, listen to this, the statistics of churchgoers who regularly watch pornography is not much different than those who don't go to church. Virtually the same. The person who's regularly attending church is indulging in sexual immorality to the same extent as the one who never darkens the door of a church. Pornography is destroying marriages. It's destroying relationships. It's destroying homes. It's destroying your mind. We need to be making every single day a covenant with our eyes that we would never look on pornography. But pornography is not the only sexual sin that churchgoers, Christian college students are indulging in. Issues of gender and sexuality are becoming additional sins that Christians are allowing Satan to have dominion in. Any understanding of sexuality that is different from one's biology of male and female is sin. A child born a biological male is to remain a biological male. A child born a biological female is to remain a biological female. Any notion of gender neutrality is sexual immorality. The Bible says God created them male and female. He created them. You have no right to change how God created you. You have no authority over that. You have no ability to do that. You are his creation. He is the creator. But not only is our understanding of sexuality wrong, but our expression of sexuality has become sin. Any expression of sexuality that is not one man and one woman is sin. God defines sex to be uh, occurring within the confines of marriage. Therefore, any expression of that, whether it be transsexual, bisexual, homosexual, asexual, is sexual immorality. The 
because of how prevalent sexual sin is in today's culture, there is probably, there is likely, and in light of even what Paul said here with most of them, there is probably more than we would like to admit in this room here today that are struggling with sexual immorality. And if that is you, my friend, listen, let me encourage you to repent and find reconciliation with God. There is not one faculty member, there is not one staff member that you could not go to and say, I'm struggling with sexual immorality, whether it be pornography, whether it be in its expression or in its biology, that you could go to and say, I'm struggling with it, I need help finding freedom in the blood of Christ. And they would not sit down and talk with you. The only thing keeping you from doing that is either one, you enjoy it too much, or two, you're believing the lie of Satan that there's not forgiveness at the cross. Run from sexual immorality. But then we also must run from arrogance. Look at verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Arrogance is a terrible sin which plagues all of us. Pride. We must run from it. This is that part in the sermon where we get done with sexual immorality and we amen, then we start talking about our sins and we get real quiet. Turn with me in your Bible to Numbers 21. Numbers 21. This is the story that Paul is referencing in verse 9. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, it says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. You see that? God put into the GPS system of the Israelites the direction they were supposed to go. And they looked at God and they said, God, I know a shortcut. God, I, I, I want to go this way instead of that way. God, you're taking us the long route. I know a quicker way to get to the promised land than the way you're trying to send me. God, I am impatient with your directions. To be impatient with God is to be arrogant. Why? Because you think you know more than God. They became impatient with him on the way. The same God who was good enough to rescue them from Egypt, the same God who was good enough to allow them to cross the Red Sea on dry land and completely destroy their enemy, the God who was good enough to provide resources from heaven and water from a rock and a cloud and fire, that same good God has messed up his directions is what they're saying. They became impatient. And also look at what happened. Verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food 
and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, hold on a second. I thought they said there was no food. How can they loathe that which they don't have if they've never had it? Now, we know what food they're talking about, don't we? Manna. Anybody ever had manna? I have. It's wonderful. Manna is a homemade biscuit. (laughs) Anybody ever had homemade biscuits? Now, homemade biscuits are done right when you have it with chocolate gravy. Do anybody know about chocolate gravy? Who, where? God bless you. You've had manna too, haven't you? I knew it. Let me tell you about chocolate gravy. You take a pot, pour milk into it. You do about a cup and a half of sugar, some vanilla, some cocoa powder. You cook it at a slow, very low simmer. Cook it too fast, the sugar burns, but you've got to bring it to a slow boil. Once you get the boil and you've stirred it in, it's all good, then you, you bring the temperature back down and you let it harden, thicken, not harden, just thicken a little bit. You don't want it watery. Then you take a homemade biscuit, you put it on a plate, and you crumble it up. Then you pour, you tell me if I, I'm, I'm speaking the truth, ain't I? And you pour chocolate gravy all over it. And then you eat the entire pot. <laughs> now listen. That's what God provided every morning to the nation of Israel. The best breakfast from his bakery. Now think about that. From God's bakery in heaven, he delivered his best. You know God never gives you anything but his best? Do you know that? He wouldn't be God if he gave you something other than his best. Because anything God does is good. And you, there is not something higher than good. So when he gives it to you, it's his best. It came fresh out of his bakery every single morning. And the Israelites looked at that and they said, what? This is worthless. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the one that asked to speak to the chef of heaven and tell him he messed up. To be ungrateful with God is to be arrogant because you think you deserve more than God's best. He says, we loathe this worthless food. Are you being impatient or ungrateful with God? We must run from arrogance. But then we also see we must run from complaining. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and pick up the list in verse number 10. He says, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Israel was marked as a people in their exodus from Egypt as a complaining people. Their complaints were not just every once in a while, but instead at every turn, upon every decision, They complained. They were, by definition, complainers. Their constant nagging and complaining cost them sorely. 
So what did it cost them? You don't have to turn to it unless you want to, but in Deuteronomy chapter 1, listen to what it says in verse 19. Then we sent out from Horeb and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw and the way of the hill country of the Amorites as the Lord God commanded us and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites which the Lord your God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And all of you came near and said, let, let us send some men out. And you know what happened. They sent some men out. And the Bible tells us here in verse 25, they took in their hand some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us. And they brought us word again and said, it's a good land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But then in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 26, Moses says, yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents. And you murmured in your tents. Are you a complainer? They murmured, they complained, they refused to trust God. You know what that cost them? Their life. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, they were destroyed by the destroyer. The only other time that word destroyer is used in speaking of the nation of Israel is in the death angel during the Passover in their exodus. God judged an entire nation of people because of their murmuring and rebellion and complaining against God. Cost them their life. Think about this for a moment. The entire nation suffered as a result of the complaining of one generation. I, I wonder if there's a complainer among us this morning that's costing Northeastern Baptist College the promised land that God has. I wonder if there's, there's somebody here who's grumbling and complaining in their tents. And it is costing the people of God sorely. Are you a complaining person? Do you bemoan your situation constantly causing dread to the people around you? Your complaining attitude could be costing this college and your church family from enjoying the blessings God has for them. So, number one, we must run from sin. But quickly, we must run to God. We must run to God. Look at what the passage says. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We must run to God. Here's the first one, in humility. Verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. See, Israel had built their life around their sin. They were in control. They were calling the shots. They were driving the car. The result of that behavior was devastating. And they died in the wilderness. 
They fell in the wilderness because they built their life on themselves. What Paul is encouraging us to do is to have humility. He wants us to run to God with our messed up lives. He wants us to consider the devastation of arrogance and pride has caused and in humility run to a God who loves us. We must run to God in humility. But then finally we must run to God's faithfulness. You see verse 13, we know verse 13, don't we? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see the phrase? Be tempted beyond your ability? That's His promise. He says, you will not be tempted beyond your ability, which means every temptation that comes, you will have the ability to run from it and run to God. That's His promise. You say, what makes that promise something that I can say yes to? What makes that promise something that I can trust in? The truthful statement right before it. Look at the truth claim right before it. God is what? Faithful. Because God is faithful, you will never be tempted beyond your ability. It's rooted in the faithfulness of God. It's rooted in the fact that if you're a child of God, He is faithful to never allow temptation and sin to overtake you again. That's what He says. You will never be tempted beyond your ability, which means if God is faithful and you are His child, sin can never reign in your life ever again. That's his faithfulness. The faithfulness of God is displayed through overcoming temptation. Here's the point. Listen. God's faithfulness ensures us that temptation and sin will not overcome us. Amen. Praise the Lord. That's some good news. Right? You just saw the horror of your sin, what you must run from, and the good news is God is faithful. God has promised to every believer in this room that we will endure temptation and we'll be able to demonstrate God's victory over sin. So God's faithfulness protects us from sin. So, in closing, let me ask you some questions. Are you actively running to God? Are you drawing closer to Him or closer to your sin? Would you bow your head with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking around. Who would say here this morning, you're running towards your sin. Who would say that? Would you say that today? That you're running closer to your sin right now than you are to God. 
If that's you this morning, God is faithful. And I want you to take a time right now. And I want you to spend some time in prayer. And here's how I want you to pray. I want you to pray that God would give you humility to rely on His faithfulness during temptation. That God would give you humility to rely on His faithfulness. You say, I want to pray with somebody about that. I'd love to pray with you. I'm sure President Ballard would love to pray with you. Dr. Williams, other professors in this room would like to pray with you, other staff members. So we want to have a time of prayer today. We want to have a time of prayer of supplication. That we would ask God to give us humility to trust His faithfulness when we endure temptation. So maybe you want to just grab two people around you, the person sitting next to you. Just pray for one another. Pray that the person sitting next to you, God would supply humility so they could overcome temptation. So as we have this time of playing and invitation, why don't we just take, turn this place into a house of prayer and pray for one another today. Just be praying with the people around you right now. Father, would you grant us humility so that we might be able to trust in your faithfulness in our fight against temptation. Let us learn from the past, Father, and run from sin and run to you, God. You are good. In Jesus' name and everyone's said, amen. Amen.